we're in a multi-year series walking through three different books of the Bible. We're walking through the Psalms, the Gospel according to Luke, and eventually we will get to the book of Acts. And where we are currently this summer is we are walking section of the Gospel according to Luke. And there's been this theme along the way as we've been walking through Luke. You know, not only are we trying to learn about Jesus so that we can become more like Him, but also the goal of walking with Jesus so slowly through the Gospel according to Luke is that we would actually learn more about who He is. And it's that theme that has been woven into the chapters up to this point that we have covered. There's been this, this piece that Luke wants to make sure we all understand that Jesus, when Jesus encounters groups of people regularly, these people are trying to figure out who this guy is. They will interact with him in one place or another, and then they will begin asking, who is this? For example, if you remember, one of the first things Jesus does when he starts his public ministry after he's tempted in the wilderness is he goes into the synagogue and he pulls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he reads about these prophecies of the coming Messiah. And then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back, and he says to all the people there on that day, on this day, those prophecies are being fulfilled. He, he's claiming to be the Messiah right there in that moment. And Luke records the reaction. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. Here's how Luke records the reaction. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed. At the gracious words that come had come that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked? Is it this Joseph's son? They're trying to figure him out. And then just a little while later, if you remember, there's a group of people bringing with them a friend who is paralyzed, and they put this paralyzed man in front of Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does is not heal the man of his paralysis. But he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And at that point, it stirs up a reaction. Luke records that reaction in Luke 5.21. Here's the reaction. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this guy? And then just a little while later, there's a funeral procession. A widow has lost her only son. Jesus comes up to that funeral procession and he raises the son of this widow. And the crowds react. Again, trying to figure out, who is this guy? Luke records that reaction here. Luke 7, verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And then just right after that, John the Baptist, if you remember, is getting wind of all these things that Jesus is doing. They're just not the things that John expected Jesus to be doing. And so John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. Here's, here's how Luke records that scene. Luke 7, verse 18 through 19, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples. He sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? All of these are moments that Luke has decided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to insert into the story to highlight the fact that when people encountered Jesus, they were trying to figure out, 
who is this guy? And that's exactly what sits at the center of our passage today. Our passage today is this next section in Luke. We're continuing in Luke chapter 8. And this passage is made up of two stories. In both of them, Luke is going to tell us something about who Jesus is. And hopefully by the end of this, there's going to be some application about how in the world this makes a difference in your life and my life today, like this Sunday. So let's go. Luke chapter 8, if you have a Bible, you can come along with me. Uh, We're going to be Luke 8, we'll pick up in verse 22. Here's the first story. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they, they got into the boat and they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where's your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. There's so much we could say about this story. I'm sure you have heard this story many times over the years. This moment where Jesus is sleeping as the storm rages, and then just with his word, he stops the winds and the water. The storm goes away and all is calm. I'm sure you've heard this story many, many times. But the theological center of the story isn't Jesus sleeping It's not them coming to him to wake him out of his sleep. The theological center of the story is actually the question the disciples ask him right at the end. Who is this? That he would even speak to the winds and and the rain and the storm and then all of a sudden they obey. You see, these disciples would have grown up, right? They would have grown up hearing the stories of old. You've been the stories of their people about how long ago God rescued their people from Egypt. And God did that by bringing his people out of slavery. And then at this moment where all seemed lost, God moved the winds to blow back the waters of the Red Sea and his people walked on dry ground. And then I'm sure they heard for years from their childhood the stories of how God Right as he was leading his people into the promised land, he had the priests walk into the Jordan River, and in that moment, the wind and the water moved. And the people of God walked on dry ground into the promised land. They just walked right through the Jordan River. These disciples would have been carrying these stories. They just picked them up over a lifetime of going to synagogue. And now, in this moment, The winds and the water, they stopped. And they would have known the Psalms. They would have known those many Psalms where the psalmists describe the greatness of God by describing His authority over the winds and the water, over all creation. Now you just humor me here. I want to give you three of those Psalms. Psalm 65, verse 5 and 7. I'm sure this is a psalm the disciples grew up hearing in synagogue over many years. They would have sang, You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, who stilled the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. 
and the turmoil of the nations. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. By the way, what's one sign of all of his mightiness? Verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And then Psalm 107, verse 29 31. Uh, 107, verse 29 31. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. A key marker of the God of Israel is that he can stop the raging seas. He can speak a word and they obey. And on this day, as Jesus wakes up and speaks a word to the waves and the wind, all of a sudden, all those psalms and all those stories of God's deliverance, they come into 3D focus. Literally, they're right there in front of them. Because in that moment, what only God can do has happened in their presence. Now, no doubt, they're probably very excited that they literally are saved. But it's not just that they, they're not dead. It's how it happened that has blown their mind. Because intuitively they know. The thing that we've been singing about all our lives, about the greatness of God and what only He can do, Jesus has just done it. And for Luke, what sits here is the reality that the God of Israel has come to earth in flesh. See, Jesus is fully human. He was sleeping. But He is fully God. He is the same God that the disciples had been singing about for years at synagogue. He is that God that can speak a word and control the creation. This is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The Gospels are full of these descriptions about how Jesus is fully human and fully God. You can't have Jesus as just a good teacher, just a moral example. He doesn't give you that option. He is God in flesh. The God of Israel has come among us. And you know, the Apostle Paul will write about this later, years later. He'll write in the letter to the Colossians. Here's how he takes everything we've just described and he condenses it to a sentence. Here's what he writes. For in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Literally, Jesus has authority over all of the natural world. Luke wants to really highlight that as he moves us forward in a story about who this Jesus is. Now, it's not that Jesus is just like, has all authority over the natural world. Luke now is going to bookend this section with a story about how he also has authority over the supernatural world. Even the kingdom of Satan. Here's where we pick up, verse 26. Here's the next story that bookends these two that tell us all about Jesus. Verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes. 
He lived in a house, but had lived, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and he had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons have gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, he, they went into the pigs, and they, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So we got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There are so many lessons here. I mean, we could spend time talking about how when possessed by evil, you actually are isolated. You're actually out of your right mind. But with Jesus, you, you actually come into your right mind because you'll finally see things as they really are. I and mean, we could talk all about the psychology of, of what is happening here and how this relates to demon possession and evil forces in our world. But the center of the passage is not the demon-possessed man. The center of the passage is Jesus. Now, this is the longest passage about demon possession in the Gospel according to Luke. And this is by far the worst case we see in his record of the life of Jesus. I like the way one commentator actually describes how bad it is for this guy. Here's what he says. He describes this guy this way. The man was alienated from society, harmful to himself, dangerous to others. He was out of his mind. He was living among the dead. And I really like this. His life had become a living hell. Literally, it was a living hell. Now, we don't know, the, we don't know how many demons are inside of him. We just know it's many. But when the demon speaks its name, it says legion. And legion is a Roman military unit of just about 6,000 troops. And so many have gathered that maybe here we have a guy that is being possessed by upwards of 6,000 demons. It is by far the worst case in the New Testament that we have record of. If you remember at the start of Luke 8, you have Mary Magdalene who was possessed by seven demons. Here we have legion. Now, you, there's this really open question of why would Jesus send the demons into the pigs? And there's really not a great answer for that. I got, some, I got some reasons that I think we could maybe talk about, but I don't have time to go through all of them. I think what we could say is this, a couple things about that. We do know in an account from the Gospel according to Matthew that Jesus talks about demons leaving a person, going and gathering more demons, coming back into the person and making things worse than they were before. It tips us off to, 
to what possibly could exist in the spiritual realm, that demons have to have a host. And so they will possess something. And so here Jesus decides it is more compassionate to remove the demons from this man and let the pig suffer the consequence than this man to suffer the consequence because a human being is worth more than a pig. That could be one reason. It could be that here Jesus is representing the fact that demons, that the fate of all demons and all evil will be the abyss. Now the demons probably think that Jesus is here to bring the final judgment. Jesus isn't here to bring the final judgment where all evil will be thrown into the lake of fire in the abyss as we read in Revelation. But the water, Jesus sends them into the water. Water represents chaos in the Bible. And so Jesus gives them who they are. And so he removes them from this man. Those are just some those are just some possible reasons why Jesus would allow for these demons to go into a herd of pigs and those pigs basically to commit suicide. But we really don't have a good answer for that. That's one of those mysteries that sits in the Bible. I don't think it's the Bible's problem. I think it's just our lack of understanding here. Whatever the case, the key of the story is that Jesus removes the demons from the man. And that man, after he has now been healed, he wants to go with Jesus. And we often talk about the fact that people will leave everything so they can follow Jesus. And here's a case where Jesus says, nope, you don't get to follow me. You're not going to go where I go. You go home. And the way Luke writes it, particularly in the Greek, is, is a way of telling us something about who Jesus is. It's so subtle that we just might miss it. I want to take a look again at verse 39. Check this out. I have put in red what is so cool. So Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So what does the man do? Well, he goes home and he tells the town how much Jesus has done for him. I'm going to say that just one more time. And then we'll give you a summary. I want you to miss it. The way Luke's written this is to tell us something about the power of Christ over the supernatural. And what that means for who this guy is. Who Jesus is. Jesus says, you go tell people what God did. The man goes out and tells people what Jesus did. Here's a summary. To tell people what God has done is to tell people what Jesus has done. And to tell people what Jesus has done is to tell people what God has done. The reason is that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The heartbeat of both of these stories is to tell us who Jesus is. This man, fully man and yet fully God, this man is in control of every part of the universe. You don't get to just have him as a moral example. You don't get to have him as just the best human that's ever lived. You don't get to have a version of Jesus that the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims believe. You only get the Jesus of the Gospels. And that is Jesus, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, fully human in every way, and yet fully God in one person. That's who you get in the Gospels. That's the heartbeat of both these stories. But, uh, but as we take that, and we try to like consider what does that look like for everyday life? Really, like you gotta go you gotta go relive the rest of today. What in the world would that massive theological point have to do with you today 
when you leave here and eat lunch? Well, I think it has a lot to say to us. And I'm going to just say it this way. It's going to sound really super spiritual. You ready? Here we go. This is the churchy answer. Here we go. Here's your application point. Just one and very churchy. Jesus is always in control. Doesn't that just feel good? Did you just feel good? Doesn't that feel good? All right. <laughs> Did you say good to know? I thought you knew that, George. I thought you, okay. So here, here's, here's where, now, now what I do is I want to now, I want to pick that apart. Like in a good way. The reason I think we need that in front of our eyes today is because if you're like me, it doesn't seem like Jesus is always in control. Right? The reason I call this churchy is you expect that in church. You expect to come in here and we're going to talk about how Jesus is in control. At some point, that's coming, like that's going to be something we declare and celebrate. And that is absolutely true. But it sure doesn't feel like it. Particularly when you're in the midst of a storm. As the disciples are there trying to like probably get water out of the boat, they're looking at the sky, downpour, wind, waves, and then Jesus is sleeping, it sure didn't feel like he was in control. But there's this really solid point that you and I need to take away from this. So this is why I want to take, take that churchy application and work it into real life. It's this. So don't miss this. I, I tried to summarize it this way. Just because the disciples didn't feel like Jesus was in control didn't mean that he wasn't. And just because the wind and the waves roared around them didn't mean Jesus wasn't in control. At no point in this story was Jesus not, not in control. That's a double negative. I'm so sorry, Trudy, Kathy, everybody else in here. I'm trying to work out, did I just say the right thing? I don't know. Jesus is always in control. That's what I'm really trying to say. Um, so, at every point, Jesus is in control. One scholar, he said it this way. I just really like the way he said it. He wrote this. We cannot avoid the fact that Jesus was altogether in control of the whole chain of events in this passage. He took his disciples across the lake where a storm was going to burst upon them. And it's that part that really gets under my skin a little bit. Because Jesus sometimes will call his disciples into a storm. It's not like the storm just completely surprised Jesus. He told his disciples to get in the boat, go across knowing they were going to hit a massive storm that put their life in danger. But it was in the middle of that moment they learned something about Jesus they could have learned no other way. But do you think they wanted to go through that storm? No one wants to go through a storm. Jesus was always in control, even putting them into the storm. And sometimes Jesus will put you in a storm. I'm going to say it this way. Some of you are newer with me. Just brace yourself. That sucks. I don't know if you thought I was going to go worse than that. Like, man, no, we got to like call board meeting after church. I wanted that to be productive, not a firing. Um, so, so like that really does suck that Jesus will sometimes put us in the storm because if you're like me, you always want to be comfortable. God is not in the business of always keeping you comfortable. He's in the business of getting you to be wherever you need to be so that you will be like his son. Another scholar said this. This again ruffles my feathers, but it's just true. 
He said this, whatever troubles we are facing, God has brought us to this point in our lives. And he is using our present experiences to make us more like Jesus, shaping us into the glorious image of his son. Jesus had to use that storm to teach those disciples something about them. And I don't know exactly how every storm works in God's sovereign plan. I don't know. I I don't got it. So don't ask me, like, why did this happen? I don't always know why bad things happen. But I know this. Jesus is always in control of the storm. There's never a point he's not, no matter how you feel. Your feelings do not always reflect reality. And so if it's lost job, if it's family tension, if it's divorce, if it's a cheating spouse, if it's a cancer diagnosis, if it's heart problems, you can go down the list of the storms we experience. There's never a point where Jesus is not in control. If there is, he is not Jesus. I think this is really important for us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, said everything I just said, but he said it this way. He wrote this, Romans 8, 28-29. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. The all things means, in the Greek, all things. That's what it means. There's not a thing in your life God will not turn to good for you. Here's the rest of it. Who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined. And what did He predestine? He predestined that they would be conformed to the image of His Son. And if God's got to use a storm to do that, He'll put you in a storm. We don't want a storm, but He'll use that storm. All things are under His authority. So when you're in the storm and you don't feel like going to church anymore, the best thing you can do is go to church. And you don't feel like reading your Bible, the best thing you can do is read a verse of the Bible. And when you don't feel like praying, the best thing you can do is yell at God. He can handle everything you might say to him. The concrete, practical application of what comes out of these stories is that the reality is Jesus is in control. So even when you don't see him and you don't feel him, you know he is there. Your feelings do not change reality. So you keep holding on. And just do small things that keep you going one foot in front of the other. Don't try to run a marathon. Just do one thing after another. Do what you can do. He is in control. Now some of you this morning woke up and you wanted a boat. And you asked God, maybe this morning or this week, God, give me a sign. Give me a sign that I can buy a boat. And your spouse is saying, he's not going to give you a sign. But you're saying, give me a sign. I just want you to know, your next step this morning is your sign. Here's your next step. Get a boat. (laughs) Put it somewhere and remember Jesus is in control, even in the storm. So those, those, those people in this room that needed a sign... You can say, the preacher said, I got to get a boat. That's right. You have to pay for it too and keep it up and sell it in a year. But still, you can get your boat today. But here's where, here's where I'm going. I, um, I actually thought about maybe trying to get a bunch of mini boats and hand them out. And that's how we do this. But I thought, ah, I'd be more creative. 
Literally, you go get a boat. You need to go get a boat. Go to the toy store and get you a boat. That's really what I was thinking was like, go to Walmart and get a mini boat. Like, that's what I was really thinking. But I thought maybe I could bless someone today. Um, but the preacher said, we got to get a boat. Um, but go get a boat. Get on Amazon. Buy a pack of boats. Here's the goal. Get a literal boat, whatever size, but get it and put it somewhere so that you have a visual reminder in the middle of a storm that no matter how you feel, even if it looks like Jesus is fast asleep, he's in control. Now, Ryland, uh, our oldest, he is uh, into 3D printing right now. It's pretty cool. Doing a lot of cool things with it, making a lot of stuff. And I said, hey, do you think you could print like 80 boats? He said, I don't think I can do that. I think that's going to that's gonna wear my machine out. I don't know if we can do that. And I said, okay, well, make me a little bigger boat, and I'll use that. And so he did. He created me this little boat. I need you to know, I do not watch the Game of Thrones. Never seen it. Don't have plans to watch it. I'm not casting judgment. I'm just telling you I haven't. Ryland put in my boat a Game of Thrones throne in my boat. I just had to tell you that. Because if someone comes up to me and looks at my boat and says, that's a Game of Thrones throne. I am not a heathen. Ryland's a heathen. <laughs> he doesn't watch it either. He doesn't watch it either. Okay. So, so Tess wrote on the boat, Jesus is in control. Let's go put this somewhere. I don't know where we're going to put it. Right now, our life is not full of storms. We've got a couple here and there. But I know that if I keep living long enough, I'm going to hit a storm. It's a pretty big one. And maybe this boat will be sitting somewhere in our house where I will remember, no matter how I feel, Jesus is in control. So that's my challenge. Go get a boat, put it somewhere, and let it be a visual reminder to you that no matter how you feel or how bad things are getting, Jesus is still in control. I think it's a good thing to remember. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word and how it elevates your son, it exalts you, it gives you the glory. And it teaches us so much about your Son and how much we need this reminder that you, your Son, the Holy Spirit, are in control. And so help us. Help us in real practical ways. So literally, for some of us, we just get to the end of today and we go to bed on time. That's just, that's, that's, like, that's the win. And tomorrow we wake up and we make our bed. That's the win. And we just take one step at a time because the storm is so bad. Wherever we are, we remember that you are in control. And we pray it under his name, God the Son, Lord and Savior, smartest person in the world, Jesus. Together we say, Amen.